The USS New York is a San Antonio-class amphibious transport ship. And it's the fifth uh, such ship of its kind. It was built between 2003 and 2008 in New Orleans. It was actually built at the request of uh, then New York Governor George Pataki. He asked that the Navy build one of the ships that they were uh, planning to uh, be engaged in the new war on terror, that they build it and name it after the city of New York. Uh, Part of the bow of the ship actually was made using steel recovered from the World Trade Center. And one of the Navy captains was there. He was there in August of 2005 when that steel came from New York City down to New Orleans. And uh, listen to what he said as, as they, were, they were handling it to make the mold for the ship. Those big, rough steel workers treated it with total reverence. Uh, That phrase, total reverence, maybe that should strike your ears a little bit oddly because we live in a culture in which cynicism is a lot more popular than reverence. Um, Just listen to our comedians or our commentators or uh, watch our television shows or read our, our books. You'll discover that there is apparently nothing that is sacred, nothing that is worthy of reverence. I read an article not too long ago by Lauren Frey Daisley. It was on uh, Salon.com, and the article was called My Month of No Snark. Uh, Now, if you don't know, snark is a slang word. It combines the word snide and the word remark and uh, refers to uh, sarcastic comments. Uh, Listen to what she wrote. It started when my husband, baby, and I drove away uh, from a visit with my aunt who has stage four breast cancer. I thought back on the 30-some years I've known her. I have never once in all that time heard her say anything unkind, not even in the subtext of her words. I began to wonder how holding my tongue, or at least changing what came off it, would alter my relationships. Uh, So she started this month-long campaign to speak kindly. It was not easy, she wrote this. It's so much cooler to be sarcastic. It says... I am so above this scene, above other people even. Uh, this is how you establish your superiority, your credibility, by showing that to everybody that you're above everything else. Now, picture how this, this uh, scene might work. You wear a, a new necklace to work, and someone says, nice necklace. You know, that real sarcastic, I, I'm unfortunately very good at it. Nice necklace. And, and you say, my grandmother gave it to me. She wanted me to have it before she died. Oh. Or you're, you're at the end of the day and, and you're packing up your things to, to, to get along, to get home as fast as you can. And someone says, what's the rush? Are you in a hurry to see the missus and the kids? As if your family is not a reason for you to hurry home. If, if you're at Clipper Stadium and the national anthem is playing and you see a group uh, near you... Um, I don't want to stereotype here, but let's, let's just imagine this is a group of teenagers near you. Um, reluctantly climb to their feet halfway through the national anthem, and you overhear them making fun of the person singing it, and they roll their eyes at the cheering at the end of the game. Would you say something to them or not? It's cool. It's cool to be cynical and to be detached and to be irreverent about everything. You know that there are elements of this in my own personality. 
places that are, where I need to grow. I also want to acknowledge, though, as we start here, that there are huh, plenty of reasons in the world to be cynical. Is there anybody here who is real positive about our politicians and their commitment to serve? The Bible, though, calls us out of cynicism. Uh, it points us in the direction of reverence. There are things that are worthy of special care, special reverence, not for their own sake, but as expressions of our commitment to, to God, our reverence to him. We revere a wide variety of things because God cares about them. We're going to this morning start a section of scripture that is in particular a call to reverence, and it's called the Holiness Code. It starts in the book of Leviticus in chapter 17. And if you have your Bibles, why don't you turn there with me uh, to that place. Leviticus chapter 17. Leviticus, of course, is the third book in the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, and Leviticus. It should be within the first hundred pages or so of your Bible. Leviticus uh, 17. Uh, This holiness code. Unlike other parts of the book of Leviticus, this section of scripture, and you'll see this even more clearly in 18 and 19, contains uh, several short burst commands. Don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. Do this, do this, do this. And the focus here is on applying the law of Moses in everyday life. This is how the Israelites were supposed to live. And and we'll see as we read these over the next uh, several months, two repeated lines over and over again. I am the Lord your God. That's how verse uh, chapter 18 actually begins. I am the Lord your God, which is a tremendous claim to authority. You uh, certainly, in your parenting at some point in time, have used the phrase, I am your father. I'm claiming authority. That, you only use that when it's being challenged, but you're making a claim of authority. I am the Lord your God. And the other common phrase that's repeated a lot is, be holy because I am holy. That is, uh, I am the Lord your God, and because I am your God, I am claiming things about your life. You are to imitate me. In particular, imitate me by revering these things we're going to discuss. Now, before we go too far, what I want to do is I want to point out to you something structurally about the book of Leviticus. It steps back for a little bit and looks at it in the long uh, range. There's a pattern in the book of Leviticus that is all the way through the Bible. In Leviticus chapters 1 through 16, there are in-depth descriptions of the sacrificial system that the Israelites were to engage in. How they could be right with God. How unholy people could be accepted by the holy God. Offer these sacrifices. And after this description of sacrifices, then it moves to obedience. You have the provision for being accepted by God, followed by the call to obedience, the call to be holy. This is the pattern all the way through the Bible, and it's one of the ways that biblical faith differs from other belief systems. Or, uh, to put it another way, this is one of the ways that the gospel differs from religion. In religion, your obedience comes first, and then the forgiveness. You obey so that you can be forgiven. But the gospel says that obedience comes after forgiveness. In fact, it's fueled by and flows from forgiveness. 
The difference is not the effort, or the obedience, or the, the good works. There are some people who look superficially at religions, and they see among the religions similar rules or similar codes of conduct, and then assume, therefore, they all must be the same. That's not true. The gospel is different in where the effort comes from and what the effort does. Our efforts flow from forgiveness. They don't earn forgiveness. They follow our receiving of God's free grace. They don't produce God's grace. Um, if I could use a very an imperfect analogy, don't think about this too long. I'm sure you'll find lots of holes in it. But um, religion teaches you that you need to earn money so that you can eat in the restaurant where God's smorgasbord is served. You work so you can get in to the restaurant. Christianity teaches that the buffet line is available freely, offered by God's grace. And when we talk about effort, we're not talking about trying to get into the restaurant. We're talking about going back for seconds. The, the labor to taste more finely, to more carefully, more lavishly, God's free supply. That pattern is all the way through the Bible. God's, the message of God's grace and how forgiveness comes, followed by this call to obedience. It's in every book, of uh, all of Paul's books, and it's here even in the book of Leviticus. Having been cleansed from their sin, here's now the new way to live that God calls the Israelites to. And in Leviticus 17, the issue before us in this chapter is reverence toward blood. Blood is to be treated sacredly. Um, I want to uh, walk with you through this passage, and then I want to show you its importance in two different ways. Now, um, I should confess, if this were a preaching class, if you were students and I was a student in a preaching class, this sermon would receive a failing grade. Here's why. Some, it's not because it's boring, all right? That's, was, uh, the reason that this is, um, uh, would receive failing grade is the two, two directions that they want to go in are not related uh, closely to one another, but, but they're both very helpful in, in understanding how does Leviticus 17 fit into our lives. The first direction I'm going to go after we walk through this passage is I want to take you to the New Testament and I want to show you how Leviticus 17 was at the, the, the forefront of a particular issue that was uh, um, threatened the unity of the congregation, of the early church. Then what I want to do is I want to talk about Leviticus 17 from the perspective of someone who has questions about Christianity. In fact, I want to talk about Leviticus 17 from the viewpoint of the issue of, of, of one of the most common objections to Christianity, namely, why is Christianity so bloody? Why do we, what kind of religion is it that sings about blood and celebrates death like we do? Oh, a death in particular. Well, those are the directions that we're going to go. Let's begin, though, by looking more specifically at the text. First, an overview of what's here. Notice Leviticus 17.1, verse 2, says, Speak to Aaron and his sons and to all the Israelites. This is the first chapter in the book of Leviticus that is addressed to everybody. It is specifically for all of the people. And then that phrase, all the Israelites, shows up, or actually any Israelite, shows up in the rest of the passage to kind of to divide it. Look, uh, verse uh, 3, any Israelite. Verse 8, any Israelite. Verse 10, 
any Israelite. Verse 13, any Israelite. And then verse 15, anyone. He's talking about revering blood. And basically, on the, the uh, outline in your bulletin, you see he, he first he, he talks about reverence toward uh, blood concerning uh, slaughtering animals, offering burnt offerings. Then he talks about eating blood. Then he talks about uh, hunting and what you do with a hunted animal's blood. And then he talks about uh, what do you do with animals who die of natural causes. If your cow has a heart attack, what do you do with it then? How do you handle it? Well, let's read here, shall we? Verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to Aaron and his sons and to all the Israelites and say to them, This is what the Lord has commanded. Any Israelite who sacrifices an ox, a lamb, or a goat in the camp or outside of it, instead of bringing it to the entrance to the tent of meeting, to present it as an offering to the Lord in front of the tabernacle of the Lord, that person shall be considered, considered guilty of bloodshed They have shed blood and must be cut off from their people. Now, this phrase, cut off, is an important one. Uh, The book of Leviticus from here on out is going to speak about God's judgment much more than it has already, and here's one of them, cut off. What does it mean to be cut off from the people? Some people think that maybe this refers to a, a judgment that the people were supposed to enact upon the person who does this. If you were discovered slaughtering an animal outside of the tent of meeting or the camp, you were to be cut off. That is, the, the community should exile you. That, that's a possibility. Or maybe they should stone you. That's another possibility. More likely, this seems to refer to a specific judgment that God himself is going to enact. God himself takes responsibility for this. He is in some way going to, at some time, cut them off from the people. Up until this point in time, you could slaughter your animals anywhere. Now that the tent of meeting has been built, there is one place where you are to slaughter your animals. There is one butcher shop in town. It's the tent of meeting. Now why? It's because God wanted to oversee the care of the blood. Because blood needs to be cared for. For, needs to be revered. Actually, more reasoning comes as, as we keep going. Look here as we'll continue. Verse 5. This is so the Israelites will bring to the Lord the sacrifices they are now making in the open fields. They must bring them to the priest, that is, to the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and sacrifice them as fellowship offerings. The priest is to splash the blood against the altar of the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting and burn the fat as a roaming aroma pleasing to the Lord. They must no longer offer any of their sacrifices to the goat idols to whom they prostitute themselves. This is to be a lasting ordinance for them and the generations to come. Goat idols. What an odd phrase. Goat idols. The thinking is that that there were demons, demons the Israelites who might be tempted to worship, would exist and they would take the form of goats. Now, this is not something that the Bible is endorsing. The Bible is not saying that every goat is a personified demon. That would be cats. Instead, <laughs> it's in the Bible. We'll get to that in Leviticus later. <laughs> Much later. Uh, this, uh, this is their belief. This is their belief. Um, now, uh, it... it Last, uh, actually, last week, uh, after we talked about goat idols from Leviticus chapter 16, Leslie, Leslie Schmucker came to me and said, we were in Israel, uh, and I saw an ancient idol that was specifically geared at worshiping goat idols. People believed this. 
Uh, rather than slaughtering animals anywhere and possibly using the slaughter to cover their idol worship, the, the people were to bring all of their animals to the tent of meeting. The blood would be cared for, God would be acknowledged, and the people would receive the meat as part of their ritual. This care for the blood is one of the ways that they avoided idolatry. This, this seems so strange to me. Remember who this book was written to. The Israelites, these are the people that God has rescued from Egypt. They were the ones who saw how the God of the Bible is stronger than any of the gods that the Egyptians worshipped. These were the people who saw God rescue them from the Egyptian army through the sea. This, these, these people had seen this. Why, why are they worshipping idols? The Bible says this is a constant temptation for people. Not just for these people, but all people. It's the temptation to replace God. That's what idolatry is. It's a replacement of God. See, apparently, the Israelites believed that the idols, the goat idols, could give them something that the God of the Bible could not or would not. Something that they had to have that God wasn't providing for them. God may have rescued them from slavery. He may be present with them. He may protect them from their enemies. But the goat idols have something, something they know that they must have. That's the way the idolatry works. It's the way it always works. Do you think about Eve in the Garden of Eden? What did the serpent say to her? You should eat that fruit because God is holding out on you. There's something good that he hasn't given you, and you should eat the fruit so that you can have it, so that you can take it. In verse 7, as in many parts of the Bible, it also compares idolatry to, to prostitution. What is prostitution? When a man solicits a prostitute, he is seeking pleasure he believes he cannot have within the covenant of his marriage. There is something that God is not letting me have. If I follow all of God's rules, I am being cheated and I need to look elsewhere for what, for what God isn't giving me that I know that I need or that I desperately want or I deserve. Here's one example of, of that. Some of you are tempted to uh, turn your girlfriend or your boyfriend or your spouse into an idol. You believe that that boyfriend or that imaginary boyfriend that you desperately want will meet all of your needs. He'll be everything for you and he'll be available for you and his world will revolve around you. And when he inevitably fails you, you are devastated. And that devastation comes from the realization that another human being cannot be for you what God himself promises to be for you. You face this temptation all the time to replace God. Jesus may have died on the cross for my sins to give me eternal life, but right now what I need is just a little pleasure. Right now what I need is a little bit more influence, so I'll, I'll manipulate a little, little bit. What I need right now is a little bit more uh, uh, power, a little bit more comfort, a little bit more respect. That's what I need, and that's what I'm going to get. Now, let's, let's keep reading here. Um, here's another command that has to do with idolatry. Look at verse 8. Say to them, any Israelite or any foreigner residing among them who offers a burnt offering or sacrifice and does not bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting to sacrifice it to the Lord, 
must be cut off from the people of Israel. Again, there's the danger that they will offer animals elsewhere to other gods, bring it to the tent of meeting. There's one place to worship now. Notice here in the text, uh, just pass this, uh, point this out as we go along, that here we, we mention foreigners. There were foreigners living in Israel, and it appears as we read the text that they were not responsible to follow all of the Mosaic laws. There were cultural differences even within Israel, but there were some things that they had to do, and this is one of them. They, they couldn't offer their burnt offerings elsewhere, nor could they eat blood. Verse 10. I will set my face against any Israelite or any foreigner residing among them who eats blood, and I will cut them off from the people. There's Again, what does cut off mean? God takes responsibility for it. I will do this. For the life, here's why, a crucial verse in the Old Testament. For the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. Therefore, I say to the Israelites, none of you may eat blood, nor may any foreigner residing among you eat blood. Um, We'll come back to verse 11. It's very, very important. Let's keep going. Here's a way to avoid eating blood if you're hunting. Any Israelite or any foreigner residing among you who hunts any animal or bird that may be eaten must drain out the blood and cover it with earth because the life of every creature is its blood. I'll pause here. Imagine if you slaughter an animal and you live near the tent of meeting, it's not hard. You just uh, rope the goat up and take the goat over and and there you can offer it as a fellowship offering. But what if you're five miles from the camp and you're trying to catch dinner? You can't exactly, it's very difficult to catch it live and bring it back to the tent of meeting and there sacrifice it. So if you kill your animal out in the wilderness, drain its blood. Let's keep going. That is why I have said to the Israelites, you must not eat the blood of any creature because the life of every creature is its blood. Anyone who eats it must be cut off. And then verses 15 and 16 have to do with animals that you just find dead or uh, that have been killed by another animal. One, it was not slaughtered properly, so the blood was drained properly. If you eat that, you'll be unclean. Look. Anyone, whether native-born or foreigner, who eats anything found dead or torn by wild animals must wash their clothes and bathe with water, and they will be ceremonially unclean till evening. Then they will be clean. But if they do not wash their clothes and bathe themselves, they will be held responsible. The key issue here is reverence for blood. Don't shed it anywhere but the tabernacle. Don't eat it. If you hunt and you're not near the temple, pour out the blood properly. And if the blood is not properly drained, you are unclean. Devout Jews follow these practices today. This is uh, uh, one of the important parts of kosher regulations. And the main reason why this is given, of course, is in verse 11. Remember, the blood is for atonement. Now, what I want to do is I want to talk to you about how these restrictions showed up in the early pages of the New Testament, the early era of the church. Uh, Leviticus is a book for the Israelites. It was for the specific race, the specific ethnicity of people. And as the Bible unfolds, of course, they they go from being called Israelites to being called Jews. And and at a certain point in time, the Jews began to be very proud of their exalted position as God's special people to the point of snobbery. 
And it was stunning to them, to these early followers of Jesus in particular, that Jesus was not just the Jewish Messiah, but uh, they came to learn that Jesus was the Savior for non-Jews as well. And to follow him faithfully meant welcoming non-Jews into the fellowship. So the Old Testament is a book for primarily descendants of Abraham. It was written originally to them. But now in the New Testament here, uh, the, the God's net is thrown wide and Jews and non-Jews are brought into the church, which caused no end of trouble. The cultures were so different, their habits, their patterns... What happens if your whole life you keep kosher and you're very particular about it and then someone shows up to the church potluck with pork chops? You can't eat those. You can't bring those here. What am I going to do? Several sections of the book of Acts and key passages in the New Testament epistles are dedicated to solving this tension between Jews and Gentiles. How is this going to work out? And one of those tensions is related to Leviticus 17. Um, Look with me at Acts chapter 15. I want you to turn in your Bibles to Acts 15. Acts 15, of course, is the beginning of the New Testament church, and you'll find it in the New Testament. The page number is written down in that insert in your Bible. Uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. Acts 15. Acts 15 is a major church gathering. The Jewish leaders are trying to figure out how are the Gentiles going to be included in the church. And look what they, what they decide here. They do not make the people, the Gentiles, follow the Old Testament law. But for the sake of their Jewish fellow believers, look at verse 20 says. Um, well, let's start in verse 19. James is speaking here. James, our Lord's brother. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, verse 20 says, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted to idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. Don't eat blood. Don't eat strangled animals. Because an animal that has been strangled to death has not been properly drained. Here is an example of a practice that the the Jews are asking the Gentiles to follow for the sake of unity in the congregations. Don't eat blood. This is how the Jews and the Gentiles were supposed to get along. In keeping with the Jewish commitment to Leviticus 17, the Gentiles did not have that commitment. They weren't called to that. But in light of that, in light of the the Jews' strong conviction, please, the, the Jewish leaders say, would you accommodate? Don't bring blood pudding to the next church potluck. Don't bring blood sausage. Not just because it's gross, but because it's blood. We don't eat blood. There is in the Bible this constant call for believers in order for them to get along to flex on certain matters. Even issues on which you have strong biblical convictions, for the sake of the unity, you back off. This is one of the signs of maturity. How do you know you're a mature follower of Christ? Because you know the issues about which you must stand and about which the issues you can, you can flex. If we all dressed the same and listened to the same music and had the same haircuts and drove the same cars and read the same books, we wouldn't be a church. We'd be on the verge of being a cult. What are some of those peripheral issues besides eating blood pudding? Drinking alcohol. Uh, Schooling choices. You've got to have strong convictions about schooling if you're going to decide to homeschool because it's a huge commitment, isn't it? You have strong convictions about this. 
uh, worship styles, levels of dress, dancing. We have so many things that are more important than these things. We flex. We flex in some of these matters. The rule in Acts 15 here about eating blood is, is strange, especially if you think about another passage in the Bible that talks about blood and eating blood. The, the, Jew, the Gentiles were asked, don't eat blood, but they were commanded elsewhere to uh, 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 symbolically drink blood. It's an odd. That's that very strange, but it happens in the Lord's Supper, doesn't it? The juice in the cup, this cup uh, symbolizes Christ's shed blood. Both of these things are related to having reverence for blood. Don't, don't, don't eat it, and when you drink it, be very careful. John chapter 6, Jesus says, Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you cannot be part of me. Can you imagine how that must have sounded to these Jewish readers who knew Leviticus 17? You've got to drink my blood or you can't follow me. That's why John 6 actually says many disciples stopped following Jesus after that. Now, flip over with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. You're going to go from Acts 15, you're going to skip Romans, and I want you to go to 1 Corinthians 11. This is a very familiar passage. I read it every month when we partake of the Lord's Supper. And here is, again, an application that Paul makes to the thought of reverencing blood. Look at 1 Corinthians 11, verse 25. This is familiar to you, it should be. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying... This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now notice what follows here and think about Leviticus 17 with this in the background. So then whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. When people in Corinth were showing up to take communion and they were drunk when they showed up to communion or they were pushing others out of their way to get to the buffet line or when they came with unresolved conflict or when they were arguing with one another, Paul says, you are not regarding the body and blood of the Lord and you are subject to judgment. Does that make you think of being cut off? Leviticus 17, I will cut off anyone who does not revere the blood. The, the principle is the same. I wonder how recently Paul had read Leviticus chapter 17, the significant warning that is here in this passage. This warning, though, it makes me ask a bigger question. I want to move in another direction for the time that we have. This is how Leviticus 17 shows up in the rest of the Bible, but I think it might show up in your life when you talk to or as you explore uh, Christianity. Here's a bigger question. Why is the Bible so bloody? Why is Christianity so bloody? Tim Keller says that in the number of conversations he's had with skeptics, this question is actually more dominant than the question of whether or not God exists. That's not their concern. The concern is, 
Why, why do you Christians seem to love blood so much? I mean, just think about uh, what we did here uh, this morning. We sang about there being power in the blood. And we'll sing praise about the blood. And we love the wondrous cross where the blood was shed. This is, uh, this is so gruesome. Why does God like blood so much? It's so savage. It's so primitive. Uh, Richard Dawkins, of course, is one of the well-known atheists, and he wrote a book called The God Delusion, a big best-selling book. And after he wrote that book, he was invited by the editors of Time magazine to have a debate that they hosted with Francis Collins, who was a Christian and a scientist. And at the end of the debate, here's what Richard Dawkins said. I'll read this rather lengthy quote from him. My mind, he said, is not closed to the idea of God, as you have occasionally suggested, Francis. My mind is open to the most wonderful range of future possibilities, which I cannot even dream about, nor can you, nor can anybody else. What I am skeptical about is the idea that whatever wonderful revelation does come in the science of the future, it will turn out to be one of the particular historical religions that people happen to have dreamed up. In other words, he says, well, someday we may prove that God exists, but he's not going to be the God of the Hindus or the Buddhists or the Muslims or the Christians or the Romans or the Greeks. That These religions can't be right. I'll, I'll keep going. When we started and we were talking about the origins of the universe and the physical constants, I provided what I thought were cogent arguments against a supernatural intelligent designer. But it does seem to me to be a worthy idea. He likes the idea of a supernatural intelligent designer. It's a refutable idea, but nevertheless, it's grand and big enough to be worthy of respect. Here's, here's what he says. I don't see the Olympian gods or Jesus coming down and dying on the cross as worthy of that grandeur. They strike me as parochial. If there is a God, it's going to be a whole lot bigger and a whole lot more incomprehensible than anything that any theologian or any religion has ever proposed. Richard Dawkins says the cross is not grand enough. Some people think that it's just gross. What is the blood for anyway? Why does God demand it? If someone offends me, if you come and sin against me, and you say, oh, Joel, I'm really sorry, will you forgive me? I don't say to you, yes, I will forgive you, but get a goat first and slit its throat in front of me. I do not do that. Why? Why is this so much in Leviticus? So much in the Bible? Well, uh, here's a principle that you have to remember. You have to remember this. Forgiveness requires sacrifice. Forgiveness requires sacrifice. Just because you've never asked somebody to slaughter a goat in your presence doesn't mean that you have never participated in sacrifice if you've truly forgiven someone. Now think about this first in, in economic terms. It's, it's easier to go from economic terms to moral terms. So let's think economics first. If I hit a golf ball and it flies through the air and it hits your windshield and breaks it, I have hurt you. <laughs> You'll know it was an accident because I can never do that on purpose. But let's assume here that the, my golf ball hits your windshield and broke it. I have hurt you. I have lowered the value of your car. I am in your debt. I owe you the cost of replacing your windshield. Our reconciliation demands that I pay you what I owe. Actually, there's a relational and an economic issue there. There's a relational issue that I was careless enough about you and the things that you own that I was, was hitting my golf, club, golf ball near your car. 
And there's an economic breach, isn't there? I owe you money. But what about situations where you get hurt, where there's no monetary amount that can be assigned? How much does a betrayed confidence cost? How much does somebody owe you if they lie to you? How much money should they give you if they neglect you or they're sharp in your words? Our court system tries to establish that, right? Punitive damages or, or compensatory payment. How much does somebody owe you for uh, uh, abusing you? There's, there's no money there, but there's still costs to be paid, isn't there? There is the cost of embarrassment and shame and humiliation, sorrow, pain. What do you do in that situation? Well, uh, you can do one of two things. You can exact revenge. You can try to make the scales even. You can get them back. You can humiliate them. You can tell their secrets. You can hurt them. You can use sharper words. That's something that you can do. You can get them back. How often does that work, though? You try to get even, but the scales are, are difficult to balance. Um, have you ever seen a really good revenge story or read a really good revenge story? They're somewhat satisfying. Uh, one of the, the original and one of the best is, is still a novel by Alexander Dumas it's called The Count of Monte Cristo. I confess something to you. I have not read the book, but I saw the movie. Uh, uh, several years ago, I'm sure they've made several movie versions since uh, Alexander Dumas wrote the book. And uh, this one, uh, the one I saw has Billy Zane in it. He starts out as a a young man with with a great future. He's got a beautiful fiance, but his friend turns on him. He's arrested. He's in prison for a... (laughs) So graceful up here. He's in prison for a crime he doesn't commit... Uh, and um, uh, eventually he escapes from prison and he, he discovers that his friend has prospered. The love of his life has been bullied into marrying him. So what does this man do? Uh, the Count of Monte Cristo, he exacts revenge. And it's, it's brilliant. He, he does it just right. He, he plots and he plans and the revenge is just perfect. His, his friend suffers Great humiliation and a great downfall. He loses his life and it's, it's satisfying except, well, do you know what every great revenge story has in common? There's always rescuing love in it. You know what happens in, in the Count of Monte Cristo, of course, he gets his girl back. He rescues her from the schlub of a husband that she was forced to marry. He rescued her. So at the end of the story, he not only has perfect revenge, he has rescued his, his love. And that, that's satisfying. Think about every revenge story that you've ever seen or you've heard about. It always ends, unless it's a horribly depressing story. It ends with this rescuing love. You can try to exact revenge. You can try that. Or when someone hurts you, you can forgive. What happens when you forgive? When you forgive, you bear the cost of the hurt yourself. 
You don't try to enact it on them. You bear yourself the humiliation, the shame, the embarrassment, the pain, the sorrow. True forgiveness means that you choose to sacrifice yourself in order to forgive because forgiveness always requires sacrifice. And the good news of the Bible is that God offers forgiveness. And for our forgiveness, he bears the cost of the sin himself. He requires and he provides sacrifice. That's what Leviticus 17 verse 11 is about. I have given you blood for atonement for yourselves. It is the blood that makes atonement for your life. But all actually of that shed blood, all of those sheep and goats and bulls in the Old Testament were just foretaste, right? Foreshadowing of the ultimate sacrifice, namely Jesus. And on the cross, he absorbed in himself all of the injustice, all of the rebellion, all of the unjustified anger and neglect. He bore the cost of of the sin himself. He bore our sorrows. He carried our griefs. The cross is a perfect revenge story because every wrong is righted on the cross. Every sin is met with the perfect amount of justice. But it is also a rescuing love story because it's on the cross that Jesus offered himself to rescue all who turn to him by faith. We take of the Lord's Supper, we drink it, it's a symbol of of our participation in Christ's sacrifice. It's a marker of faith. God demands demands that you be holy, that you live a perfect life. And when you fail, as you inevitably will, you deserve to die. But he has also provided one who lived a perfect life in your stead and died the death you deserve. And he offers forgiveness to everybody who will receive it. And there's great reverence demanded here. Reverence for the Son. Reverence for the Son who has shed His blood. It's reverence that is so deep, it will consume our worship for eternity. The angels will cry, Hail the Lamb, who was slain for the world, rule in power. And the earth will reply, You shall reign as the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we are grateful to you that you have provided perfect justice and you have rescued us all in the cross of our dear Lord. Father, we've we've thought about this reverence that you demand and it shows up in so so many ways uh, in, in, in in our church. Uh, Father, I, I, I pray, as, as we think most particularly about this, this forgiveness, thank you for forgiving us through Jesus Christ, our Savior. And I pray that you would make our congregation a forgiving congregation who, because Jesus bore the consequences of our sin on the cross, we will, we will in, in small human ways, bear the cost. Small human ways that at times feel very, very big. Father, I know that there are people in our congregation who feel in their lives the sting of others' anger and neglect and abuse. And and I pray that you would, out of reverence for Jesus Christ and his sacrifice, move them gladly into forgiveness and out of bitterness and anger. 
do those things because we revere as a congregation Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.